so please feel free to, uh, to grab it and take it if you don't have it. And you can go to Psalm 95, and that's where we're going to be camping out today as we continue our series through the Psalms for the summer. Um, this morning, we've been going through all these different types of Psalms. And this morning, we're going to go through what's called an enthronement Psalm. And it's all about um, David writing a song and basically making much and reminding the people about all who God is. Everything that God is. He's going to magnify. He's going to emphasize God's greatness. He's going to emphasize God's greatness in this psalm. And you know, what's interesting is that most of our troubles, if we're going to look at this really honestly this morning, which I'd like to because I don't want to ever be a guy that's up here looking at things dishonestly with you guys, most of our troubles can be traced back to our worship. Most of our troubles can be traced back to our worship, and, and more specifically, can be traced back to our misdirected worship. We struggle with worship. I mean, as I was kind of going through this text this week, I realized what a struggle it is for me to direct my worship and to move my focus and my affection and my attention just back to God. Because it's not a natural thing for me to do. And so when we complain, and when we're cynical, and when we're dissatisfied, all of that, all of those things, all of those things that are sort of troubling us inside can usually be traced back to worship, and more specifically to misdirected worship. So our aim at Substance, if you guys don't know this, our aim here, what we do here on Sunday morning, is worship. It's that we restart a worship service that lasts until next Sunday morning. It's coming together as a collective church body and saying, God, you are good and you are over everything. It's coming together and saying, Jesus, thank you for dying for us, for giving us and for giving us a new identity. It's praying to the Holy Spirit and saying, Give us this deeper love for Jesus, for His Word, and for our neighbors, and for one another. We want to learn once again that because of the Gospel, our lives have meaning. Our lives have hope. And our lives have a future. So we all come to church on Sunday mornings with a worship problem. It's not that we haven't worshipped since last Sunday. It's that... We have been. But who? Or what have we been worshiping? Have we been worshiping our Creator or His creation? That's the question. So Sundays are a day when God's people gather to redirect their delight back to God, which is where God designed it to rest in. And what's interesting is that delighting in other things is good good for us to delight in other things when we don't make those things God. God gave us hearts with the capacity to be held captive by those things that we love and desire. He did something inside of us, in our souls, in our hearts, to be receptive to those things. The, the Puritan uh, preacher Jonathan Edwards from the 1700s, this old school dude that has written some amazing things, he said this, he said, that which men love, they desire to have and to be united to and possessed of. He said, that beauty which men delight in, they desire to be adorned with. And then he said, those acts which men delight in, 
they necessarily incline to do. In other words, we worship what we love and delight in most because this is how God created us. This is how he made us. It's a good thing. We bow before a throne. We're always bowing before a throne. And when it's the throne of God, we find, among other things, identity, rest, and reason. We discover that God never fails to live up to who he is. So our sense of joy and our happiness and our contentment can find its settledness in the maker of those things rather than the things he's made. It's a total reorientation. C.S. Lewis said this. I love this quote. He said, Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Human history is the long, terrible story, optimist there, C.S., of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. So this morning we're going to look at Psalm 95, if you're not there. And we're going to look at the ways that David brings us back to who God is so that we don't stray from him in our hearts like the children of Israel did back in the day. They hardened their hearts against God. And we're going to see what God can do for us inside to make us a church and a people that are redirecting and finding our identity and our happiness and our contentment even when things go south we find those things in God through Jesus Christ. So let's read Psalm 95. It says this. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also, and the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, verse 8, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Verse 11, therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. That's God's word. So I want to lay out four things for us that tell us that this psalm is telling us about God so that we can understand what it means to be a worshiping person Un with the understanding that we are a worshiping person, but we always have to be looking at where that is being directed. Number one, God is praiseworthy. That's what we see when we dive into verses 1 and 2 here. God is praiseworthy. What David's doing as he comes into the psalm is he's giving us like what we did at the beginning of our singing, or of our time of singing, is he's giving us a call to worship. David invites the people to worship. He says, sing, make joyful noises, and be thankful because he's delivered us once and for all. 
That's what David is saying. So, again, we gather together as a church to collectively call out to God and tell Him how great He is because He's given us a salvation that cannot and will not fail. So all of our strivings that we come into this place with after relationships and careers and cars and boats and bikes and houses and businesses and vacations and savings accounts are just failed jabs at a longing for something eternal that the Bible says God has actually put into our hearts. Like that longing for something more that we don't just keep hitting that ceiling over and over again. We want to reach deeper into things. We want things that are going to satisfy us more fully. That comes from God. That's an eternal longing that God put into our hearts. What David shows us here is that we sing and we make noise to God. And if you've witnessed our worship, there's a lot of noise in it. We make noise to God because of history reality, and potentiality. God is active. God is acting, and God will act. That's what we have when we have God. We have a past, a present, and a future reality. And His act of grace and mercy, man, it just calls for something from us. And we look and see what He's done. It calls for a response of thanksgiving that we learn how to do best in a corporate setting on Sundays with other brothers and sisters. This is just what he's given us as a means to explore and discover this and understand this more fully. Sunday really is a kickoff. It's a kickoff for our worship. So right now, my little brother is losing his mind waiting for the NFL kickoff on September 10th, Patriots versus Steelers. I know, it's impressive that I know that for some of you. I know that. The weirdest thing in the world would be if my brother watched the opening game on September 10th and then never uttered another word about football until next Sunday's game on the 17th. It would make no sense. One, if that happened and you knew him, you would probably, uh, you probably wouldn't know that he was a a football fan. If if that's how, if that's how he, if that's how he, he came into it. And two, if you did know he was a football fan, you'd probably assume that he just didn't have much of an interest in it beyond Sunday afternoon. My brother praises the game of football because for him, football is a worthy game to be praised. Does that make sense? We praise God because he deserves it. And we believe he deserves it because of what he's done So, follow me on this. Our identity now is in what God has done and what he's doing through us, and that's what gives us our being and our identity. And I just think, man, the times that we become bored and dulled against something is when we've forgotten the truth and failed to be captivated by the wonder of what it actually is. Like, if I remember the ways my wife here in the front, Melissa, has shown her love and her kindness, her patience, her sacrifice, her five-spice pork roast. I mean, you just throw whatever you want in there, babe. Don't get a big head right now because it's getting crazy, isn't it? 
if I remember the times that she has shown those things to me, my response is natural in that it wants to respond in gratefulness and immediacy to her. And it causes me to feel ashamed at the same time for the times that I, I haven't done that. So what I think we've done, when we talk about God being worthy to be praised, God is praiseworthy, I think we've equated the idea of worshiping and praising God to meaning just boring, dead, lifeless worship services. Or ones where you have a guy on stage with a mile-wide smile that resembles an infomercial, right? So worshiping God, it feels like something disconnected from real life. Instead of it being the way someone who now has real life actually lives. It's going to be hard to worship somebody on Sunday that we rarely speak to or hear from during the week. Do you guys follow what I'm saying? When that happens, Sundays begin to feel like the kind of meetings that we usually have on Monday mornings that we dread and count down the minutes that we can get away from and exit because there's typically not a relationship there. Or if there is, it's something that hasn't proven to be life-giving. But that's not what David tells us here about God. He's praise-worthy. He's the rock of our salvation. We come into his presence with thanksgiving. So God is praise-worthy. David invites us to sing to the one who fashioned and formed our vocal cords to do the thing that we just did. God is praiseworthy too. God is a great God. We read that in verses 3 through 5. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Have you guys ever, um, here's a question, have you ever had to create a bio for yourself? You know, where you, you have to write down who you are based on the things you've accomplished, you're trying to get a job, and they say, hey, give me a bio, let me know where you've come from, what you've done. Um, gosh, man, if somebody asks me for my bio, I always think, dude, it's just so sad. Like, I got nothing, I got nothing for this. I have no idea what to write down on this thing. I've done, I haven't done anything, you know. So what David does here in these, in these verses is he lays out a bio for God that just crushes it, that just kills it. He says, he's a great king above all gods. He says, the depths of the earth are in his hands. The depths of the earth are in his hands. Start, like, start like, like creating like a picture in your mind for this. The heights of the mountain, he says, oh, by the way, the heights of the mountains are his also. And then he says, the sea is his, and in case you forgot, the dry land is too, because he formed it. So the psalmist is giving us some insight into who God is. How he's different from all the other things that we shower with praise and describes why he is worthy to be the one we sing, make noise to, and come into his presence with thanksgiving. This is why. Because, you know, here's what's interesting is we have such a, a strange habit of praising people we think are greater than us, but we have a heck of a time praising God who is the greatest among us. And what I like about this, what, what, this, what this does for me, how this helps me, is, is that it calls into question everything that we consider awesome in today's society. 
And this just rewires our brains for understanding what true greatness and true awesomeness is. I was hanging out with my sister-in-law a couple weeks ago when we were in California, and we're just talking about movies. And this, and she goes like this. She goes, she got to Mad Max, the new Mad Max movie, all right? And she goes, dude, it was awesome. And I proceeded to tell her that it literally could not have been awesome because it's a Mad Max movie, you know? So we went back and forth on that. Again, if you, if you love Mad Max, you, uh, you know, don't, don't take that too far. But here's what's interesting about that. It's just to illustrate that we've become absolutely transfixed by things and people and activities that the world elevates beyond their worth and value. And then what we do is we ascribe a measure of undue praise and worship to those things. So David is describing God this way because the people of Israel had a tendency to do that. They just had a little bit of a tendency to worship things of lesser worth and lesser glory than God. And so when he says this to us, when he's redirecting their minds and their hearts back to worship, I mean, we can kind of, uh, we can kind of fill in the blanks with our own life here because we're really no different. And what we're reminded of here is that there's nothing that God does not look down on and say, mine. There's nothing that God does not look down on and say, mine. And it's funny, and if you're, if you're younger here, if you're a kid, you're going to remember this. It's funny how we don't let our kids use that word, do we? But as soon as we're old enough, we bring it back to measure our sense of worth and greatness. What's helpful is that this tells us what our parents told us when we were learning how to speak, which is, we don't say mine. We don't say mine. The Bible teaches something different than ownership. The Bible teaches us stewardship, and the reason why is because we just don't own anything, and it's the sense of ownership that starts hitting against who we worship. We weren't created to be owners. We were created to be stewards who owe our lives to our Creator. We weren't created for us. We were created by God, for God, to magnify the glory of God, who created and rules over all things. That's what David is driving at. No one else can lay claim to this kind of bio. This is all-encompassing ownership. And it should excite us. It should relieve us of some things that we have taken undue ownership of that continue to cause us so much pain and chaos and slavery. So it should excite us. It should relieve us that the one who made everything runs everything and consequently gave us everything, though we didn't deserve it. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. I think he meant to say, you can try to come up with something that doesn't fit into that, but categorically it all does. That's what David is driving at. God is praiseworthy. God is great. Three, God is our God. God is our God. Let that sink into you for a minute. God is our God. Because he made us, we worship 
and we bow at the knee here, it says in verse 6, another body part that God created, by the way, our knees, that he is designed to bow before him. So what happened with the Israelites now is that they, in their history, when you look through the Old Testament, they constructed many false gods. They had a habit of always backing into constructing false gods of wood. David is saying, bow down to the real God, the God who formed the world. This is the God who made you and gave you himself. And this is what I love about this reminder. We have a God who has us. So we just don't have sole possession of something that we get to grab when we want. We have a God, if we are saved, we have a God who has us. Because all other gods harm us. David gives us the imagery here of the good shepherd God. A God that never loses sight of where we are, even when we decide to shift our eyes away from him. Who does that? Notice the category that we get put in here when we get to verses 6 and 7. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Notice the category we get put in there. Sheep. He didn't say we are the CEOs of his pasture or the celebrity athletes of his hand. It's not what he says right there. He says, we are sheep. And by saying we are sheep, it means that we need shepherding. When you call someone a sheep, it usually means there's someone who follows the crowd. It usually means you're talking about someone who doesn't think for himself or generally makes good decisions. So when we see something like that, when we see that God says, by the way, I own everything because I created and made everything, and by the way, you are just sheep in my pasture and of my hand, there's something that needs to happen inside of us when we see this. There's an act of submission that needs to happen inside of us that comes when we acknowledge God as being our God. Because the beginning here, in verse 6, he says, he is our God. We're acknowledging that we need someone who has a rod to correct us and a staff to reel us back in when we wander. The imagery used here in verse 7, it kind of brings us back to Psalm 23, the famous psalm when David describes the Lord as our shepherd. And how he makes us lie down in green pastures and that he fulfills our true needs and doesn't leave us wanting when we feed and drink from his pastures. It's just, it's a beautiful image. So David has called the people of Israel to worship God because he's praiseworthy, he's great, he's their God, and fourth, because he's a jealous God. Because he's a jealous God. God is a jealous God. Here's what's interesting. Sometimes an encouragement comes in the form of a warning, and that's what we have here as we get into verse 8. The end of verse 7 says, Today, if you will hear my voice, and then it goes into 8 through 11, where he talks about not hardening their hearts, putting him to the test, to the proof, like the Israelites did. So, where it says Meribah and Massa, Meribah and Massa was the place, possibly one in the same, where Israel tested the Lord by complaining that they didn't have any water. So they come to this place in the desert, they're traveling around, 
eventually trying to get to the promised land, but they didn't have any water, even though God had never let them die of thirst before and always provided for them, once again, they were coming before the Lord in defiance and unbelief and rebellion and saying, where are you? Where's the water? So the warning here that David is trying to give us, that he's trying to give the people he's writing to, is don't harden your hearts. Remember what happened. It's interesting that we don't have any power to soften our hearts, but we have the power to harden our hearts, don't we? Our hearts become hard to the Lord when we settle into unbelief, demanding things from God by insinuating that His character is something other than what we've seen and known it to be. That's why he says in verse 10 here, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, There are people who go astray in their heart and they haven't known my ways. This is the people that Moses brought out of Egypt. It's generation God loathed. It's a crazy thing to hear God say, isn't it? But he loathed them because they strayed in their heart and they didn't know God's ways. And you know, Matt, when I read that, I mean, there are certain passages, if you're serious about God's word, there are certain passages that should give us shivers. I think this is one of them. Notice how he says the people went astray. It was in their heart that they went astray. Meaning everything we've read up to this point about worship, about praising, about singing, about noise making, is something that begins in the heart. Which is how we understand worship. Here's how angry God gets when we refuse to give him the worship due him. Now, I thought this was going to be actually a much more lighthearted psalm, but I was totally wrong about that. Verse 11 says, Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Because Hebrews chapter 3 fleshes this out much better than I ever could. So why don't we just go to the writer of Hebrews and get some more insight into this passage. So you want to make a hard right... Go all the way almost to the end so you get to Hebrews. We're going to pick up at verse 16. Hebrews 3, verse 16. You guys there? This is what the writer of Hebrews says. 3.16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? He's talking about this passage that we're talking about right now in Psalm. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So we see the road to God's wrath, which is disobedience, which is unbelief. And then we understand that the road away from God's wrath and into his rest is always down to obedience and worship. Because our worship is rooted in our belief. That's what's going on right there. And the ultimate consequences 
of what we worship, what we spend a lifetime worshiping, is either in the end, ultimately, the bad news, the good news, it's going to be wrath of God, or it's going to be rest in the finished work of Christ. That's the hope. That's the encouragement for us. Because God is praiseworthy. Because God is great. Because God is our God. But God is jealous. He is jealous. And He is a God of wrath that provides rest against His wrath through Jesus Christ. It's amazing. So let me finish with four things about God to help root our worship in Him and give Him what is His because God is all these things. And so we're all going to walk away today. We're all going to go to our different avenues and streams of life. What are we going to do? What's going to happen in us internally? Are we going to continue to stray? Are we going to begin to stray? Because what we think about God, what we know about God, what we believe about God is going to affect our identity and how we act based on who God is in our lives. Number one, because God is praiseworthy, it helps us measure the worthiness of other things in comparison to God. It helps us measure the worthiness of other things in comparison to God. Worship is necessary for us because God is worthy of it and we must give to God everything worthy of Him. I mean, do you ever stop and realize how many things you can praise and worship the Lord for? It's not just reserved for singing on Sunday. It's eating something delicious and saying, to God be glory because food doesn't have to have any flavor, but He gave it flavor so that we could know He's a flavorful God. He gave grapes their grapiness. He gave peaches their peachiness. I'm, I'm keeping a summer theme going on right now. He gave chocolate its chocolatiness. He gave milkshakes their milkshakiness. It's not just food. I just like food. So I'm, I went food with this thing. That's how we can give God praise for everything that we have in our lives that we don't deserve, that we can see the effect of His mercy and grace. And what a merciful thing when I take a bite into one of those cheddar cheeseburgers that I love, that I can say, Lord, thank you for making this taste so ridiculous. It's just fantastic. Praise God for that. Because He's praiseworthy. Two, because God is great, it helps us see everything as being under His grandeur. Okay, so worship is ascribing greatness and grandeur to God. It's saying, oh yeah, I forgot, God, you're great. And all of this comes from your hand. It allows us to not make things that are good into God. So, like a lot of young dudes, I loved playing with Hot Wheels when I was a kid. But if I ever placed my Hot Wheel on the ground next to a Corvette convertible, dude, there was no comparison. It's not that. It's not that. It's not great like that. We must always be turning back 
and training our affections to be God and gospel-centered so that we don't walk around with hot wheels thinking that we have a real automobile. God is praiseworthy. God is great. Because God is ours. Number three, it helps us humble ourselves. And worship is just a profound act of humility. Let's bow down. Let's kneel as creatures before a creator in all that we do. That's what David's been saying. He's our king. We have him because he has us. So think back to the times that you arrogantly thought you had control of something and then the whole thing just went belly up. I mean, you suffered some measure of shame and embarrassment when that happened. Not because, really, because everything collapsed, but because you bragged about building it. The big deal about the Titanic, all right, is not that it sunk, because boats sink. It's that the builder claimed it was unsinkable, and he staked his life and the lives of everybody on that ship on that belief. So think about this. If you are a Christian, the God who spoke light and planets and people into existence has taken sole ownership of you. If he walked into this room right now, he would look you in the eye and he would say your name as someone who knows you better than you've ever been known. And we brag about knowing important people, don't we? We long to be VIPs. As children of God, we know the one who at one point sat up in a tomb after dying on a cross and unwrapped the linen cloths he'd been buried in. That's why we worship God. He's ours because we're his and we're known by him. Tim Keller said this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. And he says this, it liberates us from pretense, it humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Isn't that an amazing quote? Because God is ours, we are his, and we are known by him, and by that we get to know our creator. Four, because God is jealous, it means we know the heart of who we serve. Knowing that we serve and worship a jealous God should cause a measure of comfort. And not just a measure of comfort, and this is going to sound a little strange, but it should cause unending comfort to wash over us. Because here's what's happening. Our sin is what seeks to replace God and deface the image of his glory. And if God could tolerate this abnormality 
for even one nanosecond, then it means we would be putting our hope in a God that changes. And the only gods that change, according to Scripture, are false gods. Knowing God is jealous, it warns me that His wrath is reserved for those who have chosen not to enter His rest by going astray in their hearts. So here's what's great about a relationship with God. And by reading this book is that we know what He stands for. We know what He requires. We know what He's against. And we know what He provided so that we could be holy before Him. That's the beauty of it. He provided Jesus so that we could worship Him and enter the rest given to us through Christ, who took God's wrath on the cross and said, rest, repent, rest, trust in me, rest. God is simply jealous for the worship that is rightly His. So here's how we will leave this morning with this question. Will our hearts be turned back to God? Will your heart be turned back to God? Is there just something when you look in your life that you keep returning to, that you keep going after, that you keep thinking you're entitled to having, even if it's a good thing, but it has completely captured your heart and it's just pulling on it, it's tugging on it, it's grabbing hold of it, it's taking it captive? When we don't worship God on Sunday, it's not because we're not worshiping. It's because we're already worshiping something else. The question is, if we don't worship God in our hearts on Monday, are we really worshiping Him with our mouths on Sunday? Let me put it this way. Are you really a LeBron James fan if you only tune into Game 7 of the National Championships and throw on the jersey? Do we think we can step into this place, put on the face of worship, while our hearts have been going out on Him all week? Finally, a gospel-centered church, which is what we want to be here, is one where people's hearts are continually realigned around the starting point of God's greatness. And the rest we find from his wrath because of Christ. The natural response to this truth, it's going to be praise and thankfulness. It's not going to be based on how we feel. It's based on who God is. How we feel doesn't change who God is. But who God is should change how we act. Which is the cause, which will be the cause for changing how we feel. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song called, How Great Thou Art. And my prayer is going to be that God would do something in our hearts to begin to allow us to understand everything He is that makes Him worthy to be praised. Because He's great, He's our God, and He's a jealous God, and He is due His glory. And those that give Him His glory rest in the promise and power of his salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this great psalm, for this great word. 
that causes us to look into our hearts and to take stock of the things that we worship in our lives, the things that we're drawn to, the things that we have so much affection and love for, which may not be bad things, but when they captivate our hearts the way only you are supposed to captivate our hearts, it means that we are then thrust into slavery over those things. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in us, that we would be a people that would learn how to worship you Monday through Sunday, that we would understand worship as being something that's due you all the time, in all things, through every facet of our lives. And I pray that you would change our thinking in this. And Lord, I pray that if there is somebody here that has not entered into your rest, Lord, that you would work in their heart, Lord, that they would come before you with a desire to worship you and repent of their sins so that they could enter into the rest that you give them because of Christ on the cross. You can do all things because you're great. And we thank you for your greatness. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand.